All right, everybody. So today we have Dr. Ralph Esposito with us. He is a medical consultant and research analyst. And you're in New York currently, is that right? I'm in New York. That's right. Okay. And so how long have you been in this field? So I've been practicing technically for a little over two years. And prior to that, I was in uh, my naturopathic medical school training. And then, in, but during my time as a as a medical student and even slightly part of my undergrad and then even after graduate school, uh, medical school, I was a uh, medical intern at NYU uh, Urology. So I was working there assisting um, one of the doctors at NYU Urology, Dr. Espinoza, just conducting research, assisting with patients and um, have gotten more than my feet wet in the urology and men's health field. Sure, sure. And so, I mean, you're pretty much an expert, I would say, on hormones and male health, things like that. Um, and, you know, so my background is, at least in undergrad, was exercise science and nutrition and being, and I know you, you lift a lot as well. And for those people who are in that lifestyle, hormones are going to play a big role. Um, but there's a lot we can do about it, but there's also things that people don't necessarily want to get too involved with it, such as testosterone replacement therapy, at least right. until they're significantly older, maybe at 40 plus when the hormones start to drop off a lot more. Yeah. Um, so early on, you know, if we're talking 20s and 30s, how much of a focus do you think monitoring levels of, let's say, cortisol, testosterone, other hormones are, or is it kind of something that at that age, you don't necessarily have to worry about it so much for optimal results in health? So... You're saying, do we need to worry about testosterone and hormonal balances or imbalances under the age of like 30 or 40? Correct. In your experience there, yeah. Yeah. I think the answer is um, can be dictated by what the patient is certainly feeling. Now, the relevant, uh, the prevalence of um, hypogonadism, uh, low testosterone, and other uh, issues that come along with that, such as sexual dysfunction and low libido and fatigue and difficulty gaining muscle mass, um, irritability, brain fog, inability to focus. I've seen that as, and as early as uh, 18, 20 years old, right? right? And these are in men who are have not um, abused anabolic steroids. So this is completely, that's the first thing that we think about. Okay, well, you know, this person's experiencing this, or they must have taken steroids, or they must have taken something that was throwing them off. But, uh, so it really, it can happen as early as 18, 20, 25 years old. If that, if that patient is showing those symptoms, some doctors would say, oh man, it's nothing, you don't really need to check it, right? Mm -hmm. But in fact, it is, it is something that you want to pay attention to. So I certainly test, uh, regardless of age, I will want to get a baseline hormonal level. If not, if I'm not, if, even if I don't catch anything, re, even if the levels are within range and or within my range, um, at least I know what a baseline is because my type of care that I provide or that I help people with has, um, is, is not for just the short term, not for six months, but for, you know, six years and 30 years and 40 years. So if I know what your levels are at 25, 30, and then I take a look at your levels at 40 and 50, I'll know your trend. And then it becomes really personalized. So I don't right. think that you can limit or say that you, know, you should not test it below a certain age. Although I do know a lot of doctors that will not. Right. I typically will, will always check, you know, total testosterone, free testosterone, FSH, LH, estradiol, um, 
DHEA uh, S. I'll sometimes check prolactin levels. So we definitely go in, in depth as to what we're looking at. All right. And I'm sure it also, like, since you take such a, a span of time there, you see trends that, you know, for instance, my father, even at 55 years old, he had testosterone in the mid 600s. And so, you know, so people would say that's pretty good. But I've heard other people say, well, you know, if somebody was used to levels of 1,000 for most of their life, 600 might feel pretty crappy to them, depending on the person yeah. and what they're used to. And yeah. also, I mean, that's just a total level. We're not even factoring in sex hormone binding globulin and estradiol right. levels and other things like that. Right. So, right. Yeah. So just to comment a little bit on that. So when you look at testosterone levels, uh, depending on the lab, there should be ranges based on age. Mm-hmm. And then you should also look at the uh, percentiles or because this is how reference ranges work is that they look at a median, right? And then they put two standard deviations above and two standard deviations below, and that's what they consider normal, right? right? Or quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, what we're saying, well, if the lower range is 400, right? The two standard deviations, uh, the negative two standard deviations is 400, and plus two standard deviations is 1200, then 600, some doctors may say that that's okay, but in fact, it's not, right? Because mm-hmm. you're still within negative two standard deviation, you're not at the at the mean or the median, right? right. So this has, um, wh- what you're really looking at here is you want to make sure that they're at their optimal level. And furthermore, what you were saying is if people are used to a, th- a level of 1,000 when they were you know, 20, 30 years old and now they're at a level of 600, although it's considered okay, mm-hmm. the issue may not necessarily be the testosterone, it, but it may be the estrogen receptors. Estrogen might be elevated, but also the androgen or testosterone receptors. And that's what's really, really important that a lot of people don't pay attention to. And that's with all hormones. I think one of the only hormones that we um, tend to look at receptors for might be like growth hormone, right? And Mm -hmm. we know that, you know, if you stimulate growth hormone, you can promote certain types of cancers or actually might be protective in some instances. Um, But nobody's really looking at androgen receptors. Uh, They do look at it for like prostate cancer or like hormone uh, androgen deprivation therapy. Mm-hmm. But when you look at uh, androgens, you want to look at the testosterone receptors because that's really, that's what it comes down to. You could have a, you could have a testosterone level of 1800, 2000. But if those receptors are shut down, the message is not getting through. It's like knocking on a door where nobody's home. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are also just studies showing the variance in androgen receptors among different populations. And you see different yeah. results in there, different, higher levels of prostate cancer in African-American males, for instance, they've seen higher levels of androgen receptors. At least the last time I saw a study on that. So, I mean, there's certainly going to be a population variances as well. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I have been a little bit intrigued about is something called CAG repeats, mm-hmm. which is basically a nucleotide repeat. And when you, the more CAG repeats that you have, the less sensitive your uh, androgen receptors are. Um, oh, I was thinking insulin, sorry. Insulin receptors, right? Insulin resistance. And we think that insulin is the only hormone we can become resistant to, but that's not the case. Sure. So um, in, the ta- in the case of testosterone, more CAG repeats may make your insulin, your testosterone receptors uh, desensitize or you get testosterone resistance, which then can impact the way you actually feel. Mm. Interesting. And so for people who, like I said, at, you know, let's say 20s or 30s, but really any age, 
Um, what are some of the methods that you've found are able to naturally improve these hormonal levels? I mean, obviously nutrition and sleep like that, but as far as specifics, I, I know you've mentioned before that you think most people should be getting closer to eight hours of sleep. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so how big of an effect, I mean, and I'm sure you do a lot of testing on your, your patients. So for somebody who's getting, let's say, five hours of sleep and poor nutrition, what sort of detriments are you seeing there in their blood panels? Yeah, so five hours of sleep, I would consider that sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. right? And it's very interesting because there was a, a very well-done study that I always refer to, to to emphasize how important sleep is. And the study showed that men who were sleep-deprived had lower testosterone levels, and they actually intentionally sleep-deprived them. That was the experimental group. They deprived the, those men of sleep. Right. And then when they put those men in the group that were getting adequate amount of sleep of seven hours plus, their testosterone levels recovered equal to that of what one would receive with testosterone replacement therapy. Wow. So, so basically, correcting their sleep and their circadian rhythm would actually be more beneficial, if not as beneficial, than um, than getting you know testosterone shots from your right. like from your doctor, right? So, when I see men who are sleep deprived and, and women as well. What it does is it, it'll, it changes their circadian rhythm. Their cortisol levels are inconsistent. So therefore, their cortisol levels could be, you know, significantly elevated. Higher cortisol levels can also cause damage to your um, testosterone synthesis, right? So what you typically see, and, and I don't test uh, cortisol in the blood because, All right. uh, it, yeah, it, it is not very accurate. And cortisol, as you know, is a, um, has a diurnal pattern, right? So it's, Highest in the morning, mm -hmm. or should actually, yeah, it's it's highest in the morning. Overnight, it's at its lowest, or should be low overnight. Highest in the morning upon waking, and then should dip in the afternoon and drop again in the evening. If you do a blood test, you're really getting it in one second and one point of time, right. and you're not seeing all of the cortisol metabolites. So you don't really get free cortisol, total cortisol, cortisone, and then the metabolites that those are converted into. So I don't test cortisol in the blood. I do cortisol via urine test, which is a, a four-spot test, right? Gotcha. So what you'll see is you'll see you'll tend to see high cortisol levels. You'll see high insulin levels because uh, high cortisol will then increase your blood sugar, which then causes your insulin to stay elevated, which then can lead to more insulin resistance, which leads to more um, belly fat. You have more belly fat. You have more aromatase enzyme. And then what you'll see there is higher estradiol levels. Right. Right. So higher estradiol levels will then um, contribute to, to more fat uh, accumulation. So that is one thing that I certainly see. The other thing that I would see is certainly lower free testosterone levels, lower total testosterone levels. The other thing that you'll also notice is thyroid function can be uh, impacted. And when you have, when you have a, a, a uh, insufficient amount of thyroid hormone, what will happen is it can contribute to decreased um, testosterone levels because thyroid hormone actually activates a cascade in your um, Leydig cells of the mm -hmm. testes, which are responsible for making testosterone, they require thyroid hormone. And if thyroid hormone is insufficient, then you can't even turn on the powerhouses that are supposed to make testosterone. So it's a huge cascade. And, and unfortunately, many physicians dismiss the, the unity and the the wholesome of the whole body. And, and this, these are definitely things that you will see. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a very comprehensive answer. You touched on a few things I was going to bring up there. Um, so one is, yeah, I don't think many people understand the relationship of thyroid to testosterone there. And I believe, is it, is it TRH that stimulates the Leydig cells itself? Well, it's interesting because Leydig cells have, they think that Leydig cells have um, TRH receptors. Yeah. It, it's actually the uh, free T3 hormone. Free T3, that's okay, it is. Okay. Um, TRH would work more uh, centrally, but... Right. I, I question why do Leydig cells have TRH receptors? And right, that's, that's kind of what I was was wondering. That's interesting. It is. Um, and then as far as the cortisol, yeah, I mean that's so that's been my observation on myself. So just because I've had access to it, I've had tons of blood work over the years, just because I find it very interesting to see the trends. Um, but cortisol is one that I've never really found overly useful. It's always kind of in range and. You know, there's a little bit of variance there. It's a little bit, you know, I just do like the AM cortisol because, you know, I can just get it done. But like I said, it doesn't seem overly relevant. And there's been times where, and, you know, maybe you can speak to this, is I will feel, you know, if I've been, let's say, dieting hard for months and I'm at the point where even though I seem to be in a deficit, I'm not, you know, losing weight and I seem to be retaining some water, you know, tons of activity, all these things that would make me think my cortisol is probably very high right now, along with, you know, stress from dental school or whatever was going on at the time. And I'll measure it, and it's still relatively normal. And I'm like, well, that's, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it is actually normal, but it just seems to me like that's the one test that just doesn't seem to be representing what I'm feeling and noticing. But I've never done the urine analysis for that one. Right. So, and exactly. So you are a real-life example of you have to listen to the body, Right and say, okay, well, I feel like my cortisol levels are elevated right now, but I'm, I'm so I do a test and it comes back normal. A lot of people do salivary hormonal testing, a salivary mm -hmm. cortisol testing. I don't find that to be uh, completely uh, helpful because your salivary glands can metabolize some of your cortisol. Okay. So if it's metabolizing some of the cortisol, you then right. need to measure the metabolites. Okay, right. so now you're missing a whole big part of the picture. So sometimes your cortisol will come back low. Say, oh, okay, check my salivary cortisol, it came back low, it means I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Or, came back low, I need to take more, you know, uh, I need to work on some lifestyle and herbs and supplements to help improve that aspect. But actually, you could just be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one test that I use, and, and a complete disclaimer, I have no financial association with this company, uh, but I find their test to be very uh, helpful, is called the Dutch test. And it's a dried urinary hormonal test. And they check your, uh, you, they do a urine test and they check your urine uh, four times throughout the day. Mm. And they see where your, what, they give you your cortisol levels, uh, upon you wake up, after you wake up, in the afternoon and at night. And they also test the metabolites. So you get, and your bladder is a reservoir, right? Whatever goes in your bladder, it's, it's going to stay there until you urinate it out. And that's exactly what this test will do. It'll give you an idea of what has been holding, what your body has been making during the day and during those periods of time. So that's the best way that I have found to test uh, cortisol levels. Yeah, that's interesting. So is that a test people can get online or you have to get yeah. that order? From? Okay, yeah. It's, it's that called the so, Dutch test, D-U-T-C-H. Uh, Very yeah. cool, okay. And um, as far as nutrition's effect on the different hormones, I know you're generally not a huge fan of carbs. Is that right? Or I guess excessive carbs, refined carbs, you know? Yeah, so... Uh, similar to you, my undergrad uh, is from NYU in nutrition and dietetics. So um, I have been, people call it a, you know, a job or whatever it is. Like this is a hobby for me. So right, right. because I like to experiment with my own body. I want to 
I want to be the best that I possibly could be, right? Because you have one life and one body and you take care of it. It's not that I'm not a fan of carbohydrates. I eat carbohydrates. I do. It just depends on the timing and the types. So my carbs are not refined. They're not processed. Um, You know, even oatmeal sometimes can be processed because what really defines a processed food is did it look like this when it came out of the ground or did it look like this when it came out of wherever it came from, right? And sometimes oatmeal is, right? Like Quaker Oats oatmeal, it's with maple syrup and all this other, like that's processed, right? Right, sure. So uh, carbohydrates should be timed around your exercise. So I typically will only consume carbohydrates after I work out. If I'm going to have carbohydrates at any other time during the day, I make sure that it's paired with fat to kind of slow the absorption mm-hmm. because really what the problem is, is it's not the actual carbohydrate. It's what the carbohydrate does to your blood sugar and then what that'll do to your insulin levels. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, um, in terms of dietary therapy that you can do or dietary, um, tools that you can use is, you know, you want to make sure that you're having adequate amounts of protein and certainly you want to have, uh, higher levels of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. And then you want to make sure that your carbohydrates are limited to mostly vegetables, select amount of fruits. Bananas are probably one of the highest uh, sugary fruits that you can have. So I stay away from those. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm not eating carbs, so I'll have a banana. Well, actually, you're not doing yourself a big benefit. So, yeah, nutrition, I mean, I can go into – we can go down the rabbit hole on nutrition and the the impact it will have on the body, hormones. I mean – that's just, sure, man. If you got rants to go, feel free to talk for you. Yeah. So the reason why <laughs> you, you, you basically untied me and you just let me lose. I'm all about it, man. I love this stuff. So. Okay. So you asked for it. If you, yeah. all right. <laughs> so what happens is, is that when you have high levels, when you eat a high carbohydrate meal, right? So let's just say you had, you know, a tablespoon of sugar or a, I don't know, like a, a frappuccino with like, chocolate chips and all this other stuff, what you're really doing is you're stimulating an insulin response and you stimulate blood sugar to, to be, um, or you're increasing blood sugar, which then stimulates insulin release. And what happens is, is that insulin is a, um, it's a pro-inflammatory hormone. It's an anabolic hormone, so it's necessary in order for you to, to grow, but it induces lipogenesis and inhibits uh, lipolysis, which basically means it induces or stimulates your body to make more fat and it stops your body from breaking down fat. That's probably the opposite of what people want and what people sure. need, right? Now, if you were in a famine, I would say, yeah, eat a ton of potatoes, eat a ton of sugar, like you'll hold on to that stuff. But in our lifestyle, we are not very unlikely to be macronutrient deprived, although we are micronutrient insufficient mm-hmm. among many aspects. Yeah. So what happens is is you ins- you increase insulin, it in- it, it directly activates the COX-2 enzyme, which is sickle oxygenase 2, uh, which is the enzyme that many people are, uh, the enzyme that is targeted in a lot of uh, NSAIDs, non-steroidal mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory drugs like yep. ibuprofen and, um, and t- well, actually Tylenol. Aspirin. And aspirin, yeah, actually Tylenol is not a COX-2 inhibitor, but they work in very similar pathways, right? So uh, it inhibits that. Or, or stimulates that, and what actually happens there is now you're increasing the production of uh, thromboxanes and um, and prostaglandins and uh, eicosanoids, 
and you stimulate the production of two and four series of eicosanoids. And these eicosanoids are pro-inflammatory compared to, and, and this also is within the context of a, of, of a, um, of a saturated fat. So what the body will do, it'll take that saturated fat, break it down via the Cox enzyme, and then break it into the pro-inflammatory molecules, right? But now, if your body is taking the fat, but instead of taking a saturated fat, it'll take a polyunsaturated or a monounsaturated fat, then it tends to make the anti-inflammatory uh, molecules, the anti-inflammatory eicosanoids, which are the one and three series. Mm-hmm. So what are the few things that a lot of people don't eat in America or in a typical diet? Fish? Lots of plants, so like flax and chia, right, which are high in omega-3s, although it's ALA, so not a huge right, fan. Not as, right. not as, as beneficial because mm-hmm. we do have issues in the desaturase enzymes, which are responsible. Yep. Exactly right. But EPA and DHA, which is omega-3 fatty acids, you use those immediately. So we're mm-hmm. not eating a lot of fish, but we tend to eat a little bit more of the saturated and, um, and, and well, hydrogenated fats, right? So like mm-hmm. from... Uh, animal meats, butter, although I'm not opposed to those things, but when you combine it with sugar and carbohydrates, you now have the perfect storm to make an inflammatory cascade, which then creates these uh, these issues. Uh, on top of that, insulin will directly stimulate aromatase enzyme. And aromatase enzyme takes to your testosterone and converts it into estrone, uh, right, and estradiol. Right. So now you're making more estrogens, and the cascade starts over again. And, yeah, and real quick, I was going to say, I think uh, what you're saying about combining the saturated fat with the sugars, I mean, that's one of the huge confounding variables with a lot of these studies on high saturated fat is people say, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, like, a ketogenic diet is this amazing diet. I think there are applications for it, but people will see it, and they'll say, oh, but look at the studies that a high-fat, high-saturated fat diet causes all these issues. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's also a high like sugar diet, a high-carb diet that they're studying. They're not studying it in the absence of these sugar spikes and insulin spikes, and it's a completely different context. Absolutely right. And I actually just had a conversation with a colleague of mine who um, I, I don't unfortunate, – it's unfortunate. I don't think many healthcare providers – and I'm not saying doctors. I'm just saying healthcare providers who will claim – knowledge or claim that they have knowledge based on science and studies but your knowledge is based on your interpretation of that study right and if you don't know how to properly interpret a study or understand what an odd ratio is or a relative mm-hmm. risk compared to an absolute risk right. compared to a confidence uh, confidence intervals to a you know a, a, a p-value right so everybody mm-hmm. thinks if it's a p-value less than 0.5, then it's statistically significant. No. Right. What that means, it's significantly different from what we have found in the control group. It does not necessarily mean anything at all, right. actually. Right. So that is another radical. hole. But, but I had a conversation yeah. with a colleague, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, these drugs increase the risk of Alzheimer's. I said, yes, but the relative risk is, a 1.0, is at 1.08, which means it's an 8% increased risk for those who take this drug. Now the absolute risk of getting that disease is 2%. So you're now looking at an 8% increase based on a 2%. Right. It's insignificant. Right, yeah, exactly. Realistically insignificant. So again, that's another pet peeve of mine. 
Right. Yeah, I think uh, there was a statin study I saw as well. I'm not. I have no idea what your stance on statins is, but uh, um, it was something like they were promoting. You know, obviously, the pharmaceutical company was promoting this huge, you know, improvement. But when you looked at the absolute improvement, it was like maybe one percent or something like that. You know, it's just such a minuscule difference. So um, yeah, you see that a lot. I'm not familiar with that study, but you do see that a lot. You yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. So we talked about the cortisol. So now your background, I mean, a lot of men's health, uh, lipidology, cardiovascular health, and gut health. Um, so let's talk about gut health for a little bit there. I mean, a lot of people have digestive issues. It seems like almost everybody has some digestive issue that they mentioned, um, you know, different, you know, intolerances. And some of the tests out there, I think, are a little, I don't want to say they're scams, but, you know, there's there's not a ton of science behind them and people report that they give these great benefits. Um, But what are some of the biggest issues you've seen with the current diets of, I mean, general population, I guess, but even people who are focused on this, that they might think that they're doing something good for their health, their gut health, but it's actually maybe detrimental in the long run. You're saying what diets do I think are detrimental? Maybe not specific diets, but what what do you think is a common thing a lot of people are doing now that they think is healthy, but maybe isn't actually that great for gut health, if that makes sense? Yeah. um, I think the one thing that I came across was the carnivore diet. Mm, Yeah. It's eat meat, only meat, and nothing but meat. So help you God, right? Right. Um, right. That was a little bit baffling to me because – I think the one thing that all research shows, like vegetables are good. Mm-hmm, pretty much. Right? But I would say that the research doesn't necessarily show that meat is bad. Right. Right? Now, there are studies who will say, you know, uh, meat increases the risk of prostate cancer or certain types of cancers. And I would say um, we're, we have to really look at the data and understand exactly what we're looking at. Are we look, are, what are, are they addressing and assessing and adjusting for confounding factors, right? Like you were saying, are they addressing for uh, their carbohydrate intake? Are they looking at what type of fats they were eating, what type of meats that they were eating, right? But I will say that the microbiome and your intestinal tract does benefit from fiber. Mm -hmm. It does benefit from phytonutrients, like that found in like turmeric, curcumin, broccoli with sulforaphanes, right? or dim also found in, in broccoli or mm-hmm. uh, um, con- it was it, it converted into dim. Um, also looking at you know uh, anthocyanins in, and proanthocyanins in berries. So a lot of great things in there. Yeah. Um, vitamin C, you need to get it from right. some type of citrus fruit, fruit right, or some type of fruit. Uh, although vegetables have it as well. So that's one diet that I tend to just kind of. I'm baffled by, you know, how... It seems to have gotten more popular in the last... I mean, just in the last few months, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. Um, I actually just had a brief stand with it, not because I thought it would really be that helpful, but uh, just for GI reasons, I was trying to avoid fiber just for like a few days just to see. And even in those few days, it was... It was all, it was all didn't feel great, but it was yeah. very hard for me to eat enough, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, at the time, trying to maintain my weight on around 3,500 calories, and I usually have a pretty big appetite. Uh, but 3,500 calories of Boy. meat and oil and just, like, the full fat, it was kind of disgusting, to be honest. That's tough. Um, yeah, yeah, I was, I was done with that pretty quickly. Um, I have experimented with every single diet. Yeah. I don't think there's any diet that I have not tried or that I know of that I have not mm-hmm. tried. Mm-hmm. 
keto, vegan, vegetarian, um, Mediterranean, Atkins, South Beach, blood type, like every single one of these diets I have tried. Mm-hmm. And um, another diet that I find that a lot of people don't do properly is a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. Now, um, before all the vegan people start attacking me, just yeah. listen, right? <laughs> There's a proper and improper way to do a vegan diet. And let's be clear, right? There's a difference between vegetarian and vegan, and then there's ovo pesco vegetarian, and then there's just uh, pescatarian, right? I personally believe that a plant-based diet is probably going to be one of the healthiest diets for you. Mm-hmm. But just going only plants does not necessarily mean that it's beneficial for you. Now, somebody like myself, I very into fitness. I lift. I work out. I'm very active. I probably would have to eat an immense amount of calories in order to consume the adequate amounts of protein, and in particular, the amino acid leucine, which is um, a major protein. And one of my very good friends, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, is um, an expert in this, and that helps induce uh, muscle synthesis. In order to get that adequate amount, you need to eat an immense amount of plants, and I'm incapable of doing that, right? But a lot of people who are on a vegan diet, they will consider potatoes, uh, potato, uh, potato chips, french fries, right? Tons right. of soy foods. Um, uh, what's that? Im- like imitation meat, which is like gluten mm-hmm. patties. I don't know what that is. Veggie burgers, <laughs> yeah. right? So they're and, – and they're not eating a lot of healthy, fatty type of vegetables or actually pretty hard, right? So you have to get like enough nuts. You have to get enough seeds avocado, coconut, um, you're really, it's really hard to get um, a lot of those nutrients and also the ability to get omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, right. yeah. you can't get it from plants. Mm-hmm. So um, you need to eat a lot of chia, a lot of flax. Um, Persilane is another vegetable that has high in omega-3s. So I think it's a very healthy diet if done properly, mm-hmm. but it tends to be higher in uh, carbohydrates. Sure. And sometimes vegans tend to turn into startitarians and then right. that creates a, a problem on its own. Yeah, it is. It's definitely ironic. I mean, if they're doing it for ethical reasons, that's one thing, but I, uh, I do know right. plenty. Yeah. And, but there's plenty of vegans who, I mean, when I did the, uh, you know, the brief stint of the carnivore diet and I took a picture and I had, you know, I don't know how many pounds of different meats and everything. And, and I had a few people say, Oh, that's so unhealthy. But these are the same like vegans who are having like their pop tarts and whatever yeah. else there. And Oreos, you know, Oreos are vegan. Yeah, I mean technically they are vegan, and so there's plenty of unhealthy vegan foods. There's plenty of unhealthy keto foods. Yeah, you know any diet you could have terrible foods for you. So I don't think it's as much, you know, just what you what a lot of people take it as like what can I fit into this diet and still yes. count it as vegan or keto and like they're right. kind of missing the the concept there with the point. Exactly right. Yeah, that happens with keto too. Sure. People do a ketogenic diet and they're like, oh, I just want to eat, you know, um, what do they call like keto bombs? And they're just like, or fat bombs. And they're just like, coconut oil, coconut cream, um, like ghee, or like even like bulletproof coffee. Mm -hmm. Okay. I admit, I tried the bulletproof diet. I did the bulletproof coffee. Did I lose a pound of weight? No. Yeah. Probably because I have. A, I was eating so well that I've mm-hmm. that I've hit my average weight. I weigh about like 
195 to 200 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I fit that weight. But going on the keto diet, on the bulletproof diet with the bulletproof coffee, I was consuming like 400 calories just in a beverage. Right. So people right. say, yeah, I'm going to go keto. I'm going to go follow this diet, have butter in my coffee, and sip butter in my coffee all day, and I should lose weight. Well, let's let's not forget that you you're consuming an immense amount of calories as well. Because remember, calories, um, calorie uh, load also impacts how your body, your hormonal impact as well. So even a hypercaloric ketogenic diet can keep you out, kick you out of ketosis. Right, right. Traditional now, ketosis. I'm sure you track your uh, lipid values throughout a lot of these diets. Um, yeah. Did you find? How did you find your lipids were on a keto diet? You know, they didn't. My this is the thing is because I exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And I eat a lot of vegetables. That part, my keto diet was. Um, driven by a high plant-based uh my, the plants in my ketogenic diet were high but they were the, the my plants were the vehicle for me to consume more fat right right so if i needed to get more fat in my diet i wasn't doing it by eating like more bacon i was maybe sauteing broccoli or brussels sprouts with olive oil or ghee mm-hmm. and then maybe using some type of like um that avocado mayo which is out of this world i've I don't heard know if you've good ever things tried. i haven't tried i've heard good things oh. though you need to get some. It is yeah. phenomenal. Like olives. So I was eating a lot of plant-based type of fatty foods, and I wasn't eating a lot of protein. But I will say my um, LDLP, my uh, total cholesterol, which I don't really consider much, uh, consider significant, um, those were elevated. But my HDL was, although it's arguable if that's protective or not, mm-hmm. um, was that like 85? Okay. What was it before? Do you know? Like 60. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of in the middle of experiment and I'll probably make a separate video for this at some point, but I had done keto back in, I don't know, sometime in high school. And then I had done it again in college just for like a semester or two. Um, and then recently I did it again just to kind of experiment with it and definitely some downsides to it. Um, GI actually was improved and, I guess, uh, you know, less dips in energy throughout the day. Yeah. But I got one of the advanced, like you, I got one of the advanced, the cardio IQ, I think they call it lipid yeah, panels. which is an NMR. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, um, so before my values, I mean, they were pretty good. They weren't amazing, but I've always had pretty good cholesterol levels. Um, now, my keto diet was, it was not a ton of saturated fat. I mean, I definitely had full fat beef, right. chicken thighs, and stuff like that, but still um, avocados, olive oil, right. you know, normal amounts, I would say. And I guess like a, a standard healthy keto diet, if you're looking at it like that. And my cholesterol skyrocketed. My total went from 208 to, I think, 340. Wow. Um, my LDLP, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they increased a lot. And my small, because sometimes you'll see people say on a low-carb, high-fat diet, yeah, cholesterol will go up, but it's because your HDL goes up and your, and your LDL becomes, you know, the big fluffy kind, and so yep. it's fine. That was not my experience. My small LDL doubled, um, or actually, no, sorry, tripled. It went a lot higher. Um, HDL was already about 70, and it yeah. went out to about 74, so, you know, a little bit. And triglycerides, a lot of people say keto will always lower triglycerides. Mine slightly went up. So I definitely that, had That a, interests me. That that I don't see. Yeah. And I yeah, do not see a ketogenic diet increase triglycerides. Yeah, I mean, and it could be, you know, I've had, I could pull up, 
you know, 30 times I've had triglycerides tested over the years and I could compare to that. I mean, they still weren't high. They were, you know, they went from like 55 to 70. Um, so they were still great, but it, it was relatively compared to the other one higher. So that was after six weeks. And I know some people say that there is an increase and then more of a balancing after that. Yeah, so keto. when you keto, when you uh, uh, fat adapt. Right. And so, I mean, that was after six weeks and I've measured my ketones and they're, you know, they're not super high between one and two, usually maybe one to three. Mm-hmm. Um, so my next experiment that I'm currently doing is I said, okay, completely lean uh, meats. You know, I'm buying like Atlantic salmon and all my fats are going to come from omega-3s, olive oil, yeah. and avocado. And so I'm interested to see when, like, almost entirely all my fats are coming from that, what will it be after another six weeks? But, again, there's a slight confounder there. Maybe it would have gone down a little bit anyway. Um, right. But we'll see. I'm interested to see what happens. That will be in about five weeks from now. I'll test that again and see. And, and to your point, which is super important, and I want to emphasize this, is the type of fat matters. Mm-hmm. Okay? Not, and I'm not talking about just, you know, is it from salmon or is it from chicken? But is it farm-raised versus mm-hmm. – because um, farm-raised salmon has lower levels of omega-3 fatty acids, sure. right? Yep. Um, and then having a ketogenic diet with predominantly poly and monounsaturated fats is likely to be more beneficial mm-hmm. than having a higher saturated fat ketogenic diet. So a very great point that you brought up there, and I would probably guess that it will improve. I think it will improve, you know, but like I said, I wasn't even, I had no dairy, so I wasn't doing, you know, tons of, some people yeah. like load up on sour cream and bacon, none yeah. of that. It was just, you know, beef and chicken. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it would have to improve, I think, quite a bit for me to stick with it, just given how much it yeah. was elevated. Um, but we'll see. It's just like like you, I like to experiment with these things. So I'm, I'm curious to see what your homocysteine, your CRP, your fibrinogen, your ESR, your ferritin, I like to see what those yeah, I do have all those if I can send them to you at some point if you want to see those. But yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, CRP, though, has always been, um, well, I won't say always, generally it's been good. It was 0.3 before and it's okay. 0.3 now. So not it was already so low, I don't think I was going to see too much of a change there. Exactly. Um, ESR went from 9 to 2, so oh. that's okay. Oh, it's yeah. still low, but. it's Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, so related to GI health, are you familiar with a specific carbohydrate diet? Yeah. Okay. Have you tried that one? Um, I did a version of it. Uh, I did not completely follow the specific carbohydrate diet. I did more of like a FODMAP. Okay. All right. just similar, any... but not exactly the same. Yeah, similar. Have you seen any good application for that in patients of yours, especially those with some sort of uh, IBD? It's hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, FODMAP diet sometimes is hit or miss, and I find that there are foods on the FODMAP that bother people and other foods on the FODMAP that don't, like, you know, for some people, they won't be bothered by garlic, but they'll be bothered by onions, or they right. will be bothered by onions, but not by beans, which is yeah odd, right? Um, and I think the research on the FODMAP diet is also pretty mixed as well. Mm-hmm. I can't say I'm a huge fan of it, um, mostly because I haven't seen consistent results. So, yeah. um, but, you know, and it's also, why are those fibers causing, or why are those oligosaccharides or those specific carbohydrates, why are they causing this type of inflammatory or irritable response? And um, part of that could be, you know, maybe it's a microbiome response. And maybe the issue is not the carbohydrate, maybe it's fixing the microbiome. But I still don't think we know enough about the microbiome in order to make significant significant changes. The only thing that we really know is that the more diverse, the better. But mm-hmm. beyond that, I am not quite sure we're making many strides in that location. Yeah, that's one of those fields that I just feel like I was 
you know, 20 years from now, I'd just love to see what, I mean, I feel yeah. like it's exploding now. It'll be very interesting. Um, but FODMAP and specific hardware, which I, I think it's, it seems to be because there's so many potential problems pre- people bring up. Like, are there, are lectins an issue? Are the oligosaccharides right. an issue? And, you know, at one point, I was just trying to put together a diet where I was like, okay, what is the safest thing that doesn't have any of these? And really, there's yeah. like no food. Every food's got something, you know? I mean, yes. That's actually how I ended up doing the, the carnivore diet because I was like, well, these berries and these fruits have this problem and these yeah. vegetables have this problem and everything. So, I mean, you know, tell me what you think about this. But my thoughts were, of course, you got to try to fix the, the root of the problem. But as far as figuring out what foods, it seems like a lot of times you just have to try a food and see how you tolerate it. Yeah. Try another food and see how you tolerate, which can be a, a tedious process. If you're adding one food every couple of days, I mean, it could be a long time for you to figure out what foods you really tend to tolerate. And I mean, hopefully yeah. that, that list expands over time, but not always. I, I'm a very big fan of elimination diets mm-hmm. um, because it's a therapeutic and it's a diagnostic tool. I am not a fan of these uh, food sensitivity tests mm-hmm. where they yeah. check your IgE or IgG response. Oh, yeah, I just had a big conversation about that with somebody I, how, yeah, go ahead. I completely disagree with them. I yep. don't find them to be effective. I don't find them to be um, replicable. Uh, I, I don't even find them to be clinically effective when you actually put them down. And people would be like, well, you know, you tell me I can have bananas, but I'm not eating bananas because I'm going to tell you it's like they bothered me, right? Mm-hmm. So how, did, what is, how does that make sense? Right, right. So, right. Um, Though it's really hard to test. So that's why I think an elimination diet where you eliminate these foods for like two to three weeks and then you reintroduce one at a time and say, okay, does this bother me? Yes. Then it's out. No? Cool. Then we're going to continue with it. And then once you identify the foods that are not problematic and the ones that are problematic and you eliminate the problematic foods, then you can actually reduce the burden on the body and allow it to heal in a proper manner. So it's a great tool to identify an issue and it's a great tool to, to solve an issue. Right. Uh, how do you feel about, again, this is, you know, we don't have a ton of research on it or it's applicable research, but a lot of people talk about probiotics. Um, I've actually made my own yogurt um, with a starter probiotic. Um, it doesn't taste as good as, you know, store-bought yogurt, but in theory, it's supposed to, you know, have a plethora of um, probiotics in there. But have you found any benefit from probiotics in your, your work? For gastrointestinal issues? Correct, yeah. It works. Probiotics can be very effective for IBS. It can be effective for colitis. Um, it can be effective for lactose intolerance. Um, I suffered from IBS almost my whole life, mm. and probiotics did nothing for me. Yeah. And then I figured out the issue of my IBS had nothing to do with what I was eating or what I was taking. It had to do with the way I was living my life and going through med school, taking 40 credits a semester and trying to right. rule the world at the same time. Right. Right. And that, that is the biggest factor of, of what, um, of, of what was my issue. Now, uh, for colitis, probiotics can be very effective. For Crohn's, the research shows that they don't have any benefit. Mm. Um, uh, there's one probiotic VL, VSL or VLS. VSL, yeah. VSL um, number three. Yeah, yep. And, um, that's supposed to be for inflammatory bowel disease, but in fact, it doesn't really work that well for Crohn's more for colitis. Now, does that mean I should tell somebody who has Crohn's that they should not be taking a probiotic? No, I just tell them, you know, I'm telling you what my opinion is based on the research that I've seen. And I'm not going to tell you to stop taking it because I think the downside and the detriment is zero. Right. Uh, the upside is always possible. So why not? 
if nothing else, they have a placebo effect, and that works. Yeah, yeah, I've known a few people who have taken it, and I mean, some people swear by it. Um, I've never really noticed anything from any of the probiotics I've tried before. Yeah. Um, I, I love the concept of them. I, I get the idea behind them. Um, but personally, I mean, right now, like I said, that, that yogurt I made, you know, costs nothing to make. But so I figured, why not try it? But yeah. I can't say I've really ever experienced too much of a benefit from it. I, you know, probiotics I've shown to be I, I've used personally and with um, in the past with patients for um, preventing a cold and and managing a cold like the common cold. Mm. So that's probably a really good uh, tool of it for like, you know, now we're coming into the fall season, it's something that I'll probably start introducing. Another thing I hear people talk about a lot recently, actually, is um, betaine, HCL, and digestive enzymes. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on those two with your patients? Yeah, so betaine, HCL is basically hydrochloric acid that mm-hmm. can help you digest your food. And I, I, I have found benefit from patients including that into their regimen. And oftentimes... Um, I would first start with apple cider vinegar because what we're really trying to do is just lower the pH, right? We want to make it more acidic in order for us to help break down these proteins uh, and carbohydrates a little bit better. Now, most of the time people who have digestive issues is not because they are, or, or even have acid reflux, it's not because they have too much acid, it's because they have too little. And what's yeah. happening is that their food is not being digested. And the um, gastric emptying process is influenced by your pH. Right. So the higher your pH, the more basic your pH or the less acidic your pH is, the uh, weaker the something called the lower esophageal sphincter is in your stomach, right? Mm-hmm. So the more acidic, the tighter it closes, the, the better you're keeping the acid in your stomach and out of your esophagus. And adding apple cider vinegar or beta-HCL can actually improve that aspect. Um, digestive enzymes can also be very helpful, especially if people know that they're going to eat a certain food that bothers them, or uh, like like dairy, or they're going to eat a, a a high vegetable diet, like a lot of fiber, and they're like, okay, I know this is going to bother me. I'm going to take some, like a, you know, black bean soup or something like that. Right. So I would say, yeah, it can be effective in those times, but does not necessarily mean that's something that you have to take every day. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the pH thing because that, that's something I've found very interesting recently. And I, I see a huge dichotomy between you know, what is taught in, like, med school and traditional medicine and versus, like, the functional medicine side and people who are willing to experiment. Because as, as far as I'm aware, everyone who is in med school is taught if you have acid reflux, you need a PPI or something like that yeah. to, you know, to help the acid in your stomach. Um, but not only are there some long-term issues with taking something like a meprazole for years and years on end, but I, I let her, I never hear anybody talk about how the issue is not enough acid. And so, but if you go online and you read reviews of betaine HCL, I mean, there's literally hundreds, if not thousands of people saying I had acid reflux for years. I took this and I can finally go to sleep without having reflux. I can finally eat this food. And I'm not sure, to be honest, I haven't seen too many studies on this, so I can't say what the studies actually show. Um, but they're, I mean, have you seen that dichotomy between what traditional medicine is doing for people with reflux and, you know, I guess what people are experimenting with? Absolutely all the time. I mean, yeah. even when I was in med school, it was just like, you know, how do we test this? Oh, well, you know, we can test the, we can do, um, we call it the string test where it's mm-hmm. a, it's a pill that they kind of swallow attached to a string and it checks the pH and then right. you just check that, right? I don't, 
I don't like doing that. I have actually advised against that. You can, you know, titrate up your HCL, beta and HCL, and see if that helps you. Um, there, and it baffles me because I'm not saying anything that basic biophysiology would disagree with. Mm-hmm. I'm going by the anatomy, the biology, the physiology of the body. And that makes most sense to me. So if I can use that aspect and try to figure things out on a basic science level, yeah. that makes sense to me. And, and, and I wonder, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of these conversations with doctors and other conventional physicians because sometimes uh, they don't want to hear it. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to try to convince somebody of something that is, you know, not I'm not going to try to convince you that I'm right sure. ever because. If you don't believe in an open mind, then there's no convincing that I'm going to do for you. So, but I do see that issue. And when I have a, a colleague who was first opposed to it, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, actually my patients are saying this, like there must be something to it. Then, um, then we have a conversation. But yeah, absolutely, all the time. Why do you? Why are you against that string test? Because I, I know of it. I've not done it. Um, it sounded interesting to me to actually get a, a value because I like to see actual numbers and values there, so we can know we have a starting point. Yeah. So I'm interested in here. It's not that I'm opposed to that test. I would prefer the Smart Pill. Okay. Um, which is a pill that you would swallow and you don't have to attach it to a string and pull it back out. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to the test. It's just it's a little bit uncomfortable for the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that that might be the best way to go about getting that answer. Okay. Um, the smart pill, which can show you, uh, gastric motility and also pH would actually probably be a little bit of a better tool for me. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And BTH sale is actually another one I've just been experimenting with. Um, I actually, I never thought I had any type of GERD or anything like that. And I went to an ENT as I, I noticed something on the back of my throat. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's just from acid reflux. I mean, this was literally just a couple months ago. And I was like, I don't have acid reflux. He's like, oh, well, it might just be a little bit there. It's like, all right, I've never really had any symptoms of it. And I've noticed since starting a keto diet, and it's it's odd because, it, again, online people will talk so much about how keto helped their acid reflux. Um, not the case for me. I've never before had an issue. And now I, I definitely feel these, like, reflux right. symptoms. Um, so another reason why I don't know if keto will be for me long term. But any case, so I tried this, the BTN HCL, and I've worked up to, you know, I was looking for that, they talk about titrating up and waiting yeah. until you kind of feel that warm feeling and everything and kind of burning sensation. And I'm up to six pills right now for one meal. Um, can't say I feel anything, which either means they're not doing anything or I actually have, you know, very little stomach acid, which I don't think has ever been an issue, but who knows? I, so that's why I'd like to right. do a test that gives me an actual value. Well, I actually did that same thing. I think I was up to 10 pills a day. Yeah, wow. Did and you feel anything like, eventually? No. Nope. No. Didn't feel better. Didn't feel burning. And I was like, right. I am not taking 10 pills before every meal. Right, yeah. It'd be ridiculous. We, I will figure this out a different way. So did you have reflux symptoms when you tried that experiment? Nope. Is that what you, I just you had just did IBS uh, indigestion. Okay. So like, I felt like I wasn't digesting my food. Yeah. And I would just eat a meal and just not be hungry for the rest of the day because I just felt like my food was sitting there. Right. So ultimately, what did you do? What did you find? Uh, I think thyroid. Wow. Okay. So really, kind of. It was a it was a thyroid issue where I was subclinical hypothyroid, and I had to correct that. You know, correct the sleep, correct correct the exercise, um, correct the part of my diet as well. Um, I added some adaptogens to that aspect. 
Um, You're talking about like ashwagandha and things like that? Or? Ashwagandha, rhodiola, yep, mm-hmm. uh, zinc, selenium, those things, and the issue resolves. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I'll probably finish the bottle I have just to, you know, keep experimenting, but so far, I, I can't say I've really noticed anything from it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, just one or two more questions here. So, you know, right now it's still the stance, I, I think, the uh, – you know, American, what is it, the American Heart Institute, they still talk about, I think the recommendation they give is like 7% saturated fat in your diet. It's something very low. They're still going by that. And I, I keep seeing more and more research showing that, you know, saturated fat is an issue. And we talked a little bit about the context of that. Um, but do you find that they're just completely behind the times or, or do you find that there are still some solid recommendations we should listen to to these governing bodies? That's a loaded question. Do I think they're behind the times? I think they are a little bit behind. I don't think they, again, are looking at the context of saturated fat intake, mm-hmm. uh, types of saturated fat, so and also carbohydrate intake right, and sugar. So what factor does that play into it? But I will say that um, higher levels of saturated fat in some people, when you reduce that, and replace it with a different type of fat, they actually see benefit. So I do think they are a little bit behind the times in terms of, you know, is all fat bad? And I think, you know, they, they recommend trying to avoid uh, a high fat diet altogether. And uh, I, you know, the, uh, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or Dietetics, yeah, Nutrition and Dietetics, you know, their diet for diabetics is like 40 to 60% carbohydrate, which is, ridiculous for somebody who can't metabolize sugar, right? Right. You would think, you know, sugar, too much sugar, eat less sugar kind of makes sense, right? But doesn't necessarily follow their guidelines. So, yeah, I do think they're a little bit behind the the curve here um, because many people can benefit from a a moderately high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, and they can reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease doing that. But I think for a general rule for the general population who doesn't understand that limiting sugars and starches and refined carbohydrates is necessary, then I would say, yeah, those people need to limit their saturated fat intake. Okay, great answer. All right, so very last question. So for all the people listening to this, any just like top easy tip for everybody, to whether it's get more sleep, eat a certain type of way, what yeah. would your main tip be from somebody who's taking who wants an actionable step from this interview? Yeah, I, I would. I don't like to recommend like, okay, take this supplement or take this herb or make sure you get on this drug. What I would say is, if you're gonna do one or two things, make sure you move every day, right? Yeah. Sedentary lifestyle is associated with uh, many health risk or increases your risk of many health issues, especially cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, things like that. Um, And I just want to advise people that you really need to to move. The body is not built to just be sitting all day. And on top of that, do not, for under any circumstances, sacrifice your sleep to try to go and exercise and move and think that exercising and moving on five hours of sleep is going to do you any good. Right, sure. All right, so... Sleep over everything, sleep first, move always, and uh, eat a lot of plants. Okay. 
All right, great advice, man. So let's see, you are on Instagram. Anywhere yeah. else people can find you? Um, pretty much uh, on Instagram at dr.ralphesposito. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, but I'm most active on Instagram and then also okay. my website, drralphesposito.com. Okay, great. Thanks so much, man. All right, thanks for having me. Hope you guys enjoy that interview with the very knowledgeable Dr. Ralph Esposito. Uh, if you did, like the video, comment down below. And if you like the charity that we're donating to, please feel free to make your own donation and subscribe to the channel to get more interviews like this.